We're going to uh, we're going to start the meeting. Uh, François Hermé will introduce the participants of this roundtable. So, if you would please sit down, and uh, we can get going. Okay, I have the, to present this uh, roundtable uh, about mnemosine, the roundtable about memory and unconscious. Uh, the definition and the different limits between the question of unconscious and the question of memory. Um, in this round table, there are people that I know very well, like uh, Cristina Alberini, who is professor of uh, neuroscience at NIU here in New York, and working about reconsolidation. Uh, we are collaborating with Pierre Magistretti and I with Christian Alberini about the question. I have to present also Siri Husvet. I, I can say a little word about you because everybody knows your books and are reading your books. And uh, I remember that Pierre said that in one of your books uh, you said that reconciliation is something like après coup. And uh, he asked me what I was thinking about, thinking about the relation between reconsolidation and après coup. I said, no, I don't agree. And after, I said, yes, <laughs> that you were right, that I'm very happy to, to see you and perhaps to discuss after with you about uh, the notion of après coup. And here is also Joseph Ledoux. Joseph Ledoux is well known for all the work about emotional memory and this famous book for me too was very important, The Emotional Brain and uh, all the works that are about traumatic experience and memory and uh, different emotional memory, emotional center of memory. And also uh, Christopher Johnson uh, who I, that I discover here, and he is professor of uh, Spanish early modern literature at UCLA. And Pierre Magistretti, that uh, I know well, but I don't know how to present you. We are working about uh, neuroscience and psychoanalysis, but you are uh, specialized in the, bio, in the energetic of the brain and the astrocytes and he is a famous neuroscientist and president now of the EBRO, uh, the International Brain Research uh, Organization. And uh, we are together in Agalma Foundation in relation with uh, Elix Center discussing about Warburg, and now it's time for the round table. Thank you. So I wanted to begin by, put, um, by following a thread that was um, thankfully begun in the last session. And it has to do with method and, and memory, our topic of our session. Um, the idea really is whether or not after he comes out of Kreuzlingen, he produces or cultivates uh, what he calls in a letter to Binswanger, discussing the Sassetti essays, discussing the 1920 essay on German astrology, what Warburg terms a historical psychology. 
and how Warburg's own projects in the last five years fit in with this historical psychology. Um, he says in this wonderful volume that Davide Stimili co-edits, um, in a auto, Warburg writes in an autobiographical sketch, this is therefore in 1924, after um, uh, Koiplin's um, diagnosis of manic depression um, has, as, as a word, is being now um, applied and, and therefore Warburg is, is on his way to healing and he's looking forward to going back to Hamburg and he's writing an autobiographical sketch and, he's, and he recalls a time when he was six years old and suffered a, a mild, what he calls a mild bout of typhoid fever. And he says at that time began the fear of, I'm quoting, um, disproportional, context-less, context-less, or without a context, um, memories of images. So my question is, how does he, with the Bilder Atlas, Nemozune Bilder Atlas, um, it has many titles, Wabo could never settle on a particular title, how does he, with this constellation of images, there were about a thousand images, 63 or 72 different Tafen panels, screens, screen memories perhaps even, um, how does he come up with a new method by which he can oscillate between the immediate, demonic, sensual, these are all words that Walburg uses, and the ecstatic, um, uh, prudential, wise, calm, mediated um, pole. Or, I mean, he literally talks about swinging between both poles. Now, the, 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 the atlas is, as we have it, largely wordless. Mm -hmm. um, and it is based on a method that is frequently diagrammatic. If we look at his notebooks, if we look at his, uh, at the Zettelkasten, he's not able to write it out anymore. He's not able, he was never, he always had difficulty, as Gombrich and others have noted, um, with polished academic prose. Um, instead, he, he um, condenses, he uses the word verdictet, um, his ideas. And he condenses them so dramatically in the nonverbal atlas that the de-demonization process that Walburg sees as both personal and cultural is achieved. So he moves in a chronological fashion from um, ancient Greece to 1929 in Rome, in the course of the 63 panels. But that motion is not only cultural, chronological, historical, but it's personal in that in many of the panels he is repeating his own research. He's revisiting his own research. So it's, it's a form of a personal memory and cultural memory. Um, maybe just one last anecdote, really. The last panel ends with the Eucharist, or he's meditating on the Eucharist. So, we know that this was a kind of redemptive gesture on the part of Walburg, um, both a religious and a redemptive gesture. But in light of some of the a number of people who have recounted the incident or the anecdote that in Kreuzlichen he felt that he was being poisoned with 
human blood, that he was forced to consume human blood. Well, clearly, Valborg was able to transform that, um, displace that by metonymy, by his art of combination. Right. In the in the in the atlas, one maybe one further postscript is that he also becomes obsessed by the work of Giordano Bruno in the, his last year of life, and he sees that as another intellectual project that um, can satisfy his method. And the fact that Kassira, both in letters to Valborg in this period and in his funeral oration for Valborg in 29, confirmed that Valborg's method was the right one to um, make sense of Bruno. I think, again, these, these are other examples of right. his historical psychology right. that goes between image and work. Okay, I'm going to try to make a bridge because we have an expert on Abi Valborg sitting next to me. I've read your book and he really knows his stuff. And then we have three neurosciences, one who has written with a psychoanalyst. So I'm going to try to make a bridge about memory and the unconscious so that we have a way of crossing it. Because what happens in these discussions is that there are epistemological and methodological differences. So people working in labs need controlled circumstances, and you need to be able to reproduce your results. You do not need to do that. You need to have important insights about metaphor and Valbog, and you can write a beautiful book. I'm a novelist. I don't need any of it. You know? but, but I think it's really crucial that we think about how this is going to work. So we have essentially here, if we're going to talk about the unconscious, first of all, we have a dynamic Freudian unconscious something I think we're all here at this table familiar with. We have something now called, has been called the cognitive unconscious. And if we remember in behaviorism, this wasn't even talked about in the early 20th century. It came about later. Now neuroscientists are talking about all kinds of higher cognitive material that is part of unconsciousness. Huh? that can, some of it, which can be brought to memory. Uh, the Valbulgian unconscious, you will have to help me with. It seems to me that what Valbulg is talking about is a kind of collective unconscious uh, that is perhaps more related to Jung in some ways than to Freud, but it's not clear. The one science link that I found to Valborg, memory, and the unconscious is uh, Richard Zemon, the um, German scientist on memory who really got lost. I started looking at it. He was a Lamarckian. But as we know, not that Lamarck has returned, but there are studies in epigenetics uh, where there are shocks or stresses delivered to mice which change methylation, which then can be inherited. Interesting little link, possibly. Possibly. Christina knows a lot more about this than I do, and, and maybe you should take the ball from there. I'm trying to make 
little connective tissue so that we have something to talk about together mm -hmm. about the function of memory and how it works for Valbog. There's a 19th century, uh, 20th century example of a scientist working on memory who had some insights that Valbog borrowed and transformed. Now so, I throw it yeah. to Christina. I'll take it from there and just to start yeah. the discussion. Um, and I'm going to talk about memory in general. So what, what would we define as memory and how is this related to the unconscious? Well, we define memory uh, anything we learn and then we keep as information over time. Mm -hmm. So there are already keywords here. Uh, learning, which is something that is perceived and changed in the brain as a neuroscientist, uh, and, uh, uh, and then is maintained over time. So there is the other important issue of time. Um, this already goes away a little bit, uh, takes some space from the unconscious, uh, because there is no time <laughs> in that. So we can talk about that. Is therefore memory always conscious? Of course not. I mean, we know uh, not only in psychoanalysis, but in psychology and uh, in neuroscience more and more that um, many of the experiences remain in a place that is non-conscious and therefore by definition unconscious. Does that mean that it is the Freudian unconscious? That's going to be up for debate and discussion. We actually wrote uh, a paper together with Pierre and uh, Francois exactly about this topic. So perhaps Pierre can take it from there and comment about Freudian unconscious, cognitive unconscious, many types of unconscious that obviously needs to be defined because yes. the word unconscious is common to all of them, but do they have anything to do with each other? Um, Freud himself uh, wrote, said that um, memory <laughs> is actually um, a, a, an unconscious process, uh, um, or the memory trace, to be more precise, is an, unco is an unconscious uh, entity. The memory of the trace can be conscious. So he's distinguishing what is inside that is maintained, let's say, in the brain, the brain-body connection, mm -hmm. uh, that is unconscious, but the memory of it, of something, is the conscious part. So clearly, in this trace, there is something conscious that can be brought to consciousness, and the rest that remains in the unconscious. Um, there is a lot that can be discussed and certainly a lot of interest um, uh, and particularly in, I am very interested in that, uh, in understanding the memories during development, which are very linked to the psychoanalytic issues and question, uh, how much are they <coughs> conscious or unconscious? Uh, when uh, is the process of consciousness coming in and uh, are these traces, these memory actually, these memory traces um, maintained and influence our behavior later on, which is, uh, the, the answer is obviously yes. So here we can connect about, you know, the perceptions of an artist uh, making the work of art or thinking or visualizing anything, any perception. 
uh, how much is that connected to memories? Memories, uh, uh, besides that is a biologically essential function for life, without memories we would not survive, uh, is also a very important part on, of the individuality, of who we are. And this, there is a lot of connection to emotions, and then Joe is going to tell us yeah. more about the emotions. So, yeah. I mean, there is yeah. so much to go through. I, I think I'll stop here and i leave it to Pierre. Well, maybe I can take it, I think, from uh, your distinction of three uh, unconscious, cognitive, Freudian, and what you mentioned the Warburgian yes, unconscious. Yes. I think it's interesting. I think Christina already made a first pass to the first two, con um, cognitive and, and Freudian, and we can get back. I mean, right. as you say, there is still a lot to be said. But the quote-unquote Warburgian unconscious, which uh, you, uh, and, uh, you know, until yesterday, I never thought that that could have anything to do with what you mentioned, some sort of collective unconscious, because um, uh, for me, it's very difficult to understand the notion of uh, collective too. unconscious. I think it, so. So let me try to um, <clears throat> to to give you what what I, I think about it. I've been thinking about this since uh, well, quite intensively, obviously, because of this immersion since, since yesterday. And uh, <clears throat> that resonates, by the way, with what you were saying initially: um, the cultural and the personal uh, memory. It's, yeah. it's another way. Yes. So this, um, this uh, contrast, this paradox between something personal and something cultural or collective, I think, is a question in the Warburgian uh, unconscious, let's, let's yeah. call it. What, what yeah. does it mean? So initially, when with uh, uh, Vittorio and, and Francois we thought of this uh, gathering here, I think one of the starting points was the notion of Nachleben. So this idea that there is something, la survivance, come, uh, as uh, Georges uh, says, some, something that remains over time, maybe uh, is updated uh, um, at different times and, and cultures, but there is you know, these um, um, uh, patterns uh, that, uh, you know, that, that reemerge uh, through different uh, stages of, of culture. Uh, are, it's something that is, is puzzling. So it has something to do with, with memory, but how do you talk yeah. about you know, memory being maintained across uh, yes. centuries and yes. cultures? I mean, unless you speak of this collective unconscious, which uh, I, I don't really think exists. Uh, so how do you <laughs> connect this? So uh, you can take two approaches. One is, and I think that's the one that if, um, you know, triggered our interest is the idea that also, and, and Christine has worked a lot on this, the idea that uh, traces are uh, made after an experience and then somehow there is the memory is very dynamic, it can be updated, there are new associations of traces and one could say, well, Nachleben is kind of a concept, a concept that has a resonance with some neurobiological aspects of memory that th th there are traces that are uh, re-updated, re-associated with time. But it's really purely conceptual because uh, uh, the notion of trace reassociation, of reconsolidation uh, is linked to a single individual. So how can you imagine right. that this goes right. on uh, across centuries? Right. So, okay, it, it, it works as a model, b b but I don't think it works 
in, in practice to explain this Warburgian right. unconscious. Right. So I have, uh, I, uh, it's, it's an idea that I, I, I put here and, uh, uh, you know, with all the, because we are, you know, completely open and <laughs> discuss, but I, am, I, I just thought that how about if there are some patterns that, um, um, that activate uh, in a particularly uh, strong way or uh, patterns of, of neurons uh, that, you know, it's an invariant of the human species, at least over these two or three thousand years that we're talking about. Yeah. And somehow they generate uh, some emotional response or some even maybe cognitive response or something. So there is kind of a signature in certain, uh, in certain patterns that mm. is, an, yeah. is, is an invariant across, across uh, time and space. Yes. And, um, and, and maybe something very primitive. I don't know, I can't, right. I, 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 I can't actually help but thinking of, in one of your early papers in the Scientific American, you had a, a man uh, in a forest uh, uh, hitting with a, with a, uh, a rod a, a snake, and the idea that the snake would go through the low way, uh, the thalamus, amygdala, and, and generate this very fast uh, yeah. response, yeah. Uh, not at all yeah. uh, cognitively yeah. interpreted, uh, which is uh, the long way through the, the primary uh, sensory cortex and then back to... So, as a pure yes. speculation, yeah. Uh, is, there, is it possible that these patterns that uh, Warburg identified and, and that we can uh, group under this idea of the Warburgian unconscious actually reflect a neurobiological reality of very uh, simple uh, or even complex patterns that are uh, 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 an invariant in uh, neuronal circuitry and then uh, that, that triggers certain type of, of energy, if you wish, which then um, are then integrated in, in much more elaborated um, productions, uh, such as the Ghirlandaio or uh, sure. uh, you name it. So no, I this think is my take. I, no, I think we this. can talk. I think maybe at this, there, it is possible to talk about some kind of you know, biological there, there. Um, what happened yesterday, I think, is that um, in certain strains of post-structuralist um, French thought, um, the body as a non-ideological, non-textual phenomenon vanished, um, which is, I think, the spat about Lacan and, and, um, and Merleau-Ponty was connected to this, that mm -hmm. there's, there's real biology and neurology in Merleau-Ponty in a way that Lacan's relationship to um, to drive theory, which I think there are people here that can explain it better than I understood it, but it has changed. He really revises that um, in relation to what's happening in, in uh, French thinking of the period. But if we can agree that there is some kind of biological root to human experience, which I, I think there is, then we can, this is from Warburg's journal, it's, and I think maybe Joe will have something to say with, about this. He says, the inherited consciousness of maxima, maximalized impressions stamped on the mind 
engram, engram, passes them on without taking cognizance of the direction of their emotional charge, simply as an experience of energy tensions, this sounds a little like Freud, this unpolarized continuum, the imparting of a new meaning, you can think of that as Freud and you know, a drives attaching to an object, to these energies serves as a protective screen. Joe, this yeah, sounds sure. like you. <laughs> this is Malbog. This is Malbog, but I know Joe can pick up on this. So I, I want to just start with um, something that uh, Christopher said about you know the arrangement of these images and the dynamic that's going on between conscious and unconscious processes. So let's really simplify it and think of um, the conscious perceptual mind as one thing and a variety of, and everything else underneath as more you know, implicit systems that operate unconsciously. Forget about the Freudian unconscious, all of that other stuff, and just talk about it as pure wiring of the brain. Some things are unconscious simply because they don't have connectivity with the systems that make consciousness. We could call it cognitive unconscious, but a lot of emotion stuff is like that too. So we'll just call it you know, the implicit or psychological unconscious. Um, so let's say he's there arranging these pictures. His conscious mind is looking at it, but his unconscious mind is controlling his behavior. So the, the actual arrangement physically of the images is probably being done independent of what he's consciously thinking. And that's how you're getting these. So you, you, know, you make a move, you, you put this here, just intuitively, and now it's part of your consciousness. So that gets incorporated into your present state. But now you make another move, and so it's a kind of a dance between the conscious and the unconscious, as all of life is every moment. Um, so I see that is how these systems are interacting. But now to bring in emotion and um, universal or unconscious, they're definitely things that are wired into the brain that we're sensitive to, whether it's the uh, you know, certain shapes. I mean, the visual cortex, for example, has things that it's innately sensitive to in terms of angles and lines and uh, contrast between stimuli and so forth, or more complex things that we might think of in a psychological sense, such as uh, the snake on the ground. But we know that the, the low road that you talked about the, which takes information into the amygdala, which is important for detecting danger. Uh, the low road takes that information in, but it has nothing, has no way to convey psychology. All it has is curvature, intensity, and those sorts of features. So the guy that's walking in the woods in this picture and is about to step on the snake and freezing before he steps on the snake is not responding to the snake. He's responding to a curve-shaped on the ground that activates this archetypal uh, image that has been threatening to our ancestors and our animal ancestors and all the way back down for, uh, for millennia and causing him to stop, to freeze. Just as you walk out on Second Avenue and the bus goes flying by and you jump back and afterwards you, you consciously become afraid, 
the brain has this kind of capacity yeah. to, uh, to respond this way. And as you know, many phobias are based on these kinds of archetypal stimuli, whether it's snakes and spiders and heights and blood and, and things like that, or so, um, uh, social situations where you're not in a, uh, it, where the sense of uncontrol is present. So there are lots of things that go on below the surface of consciousness that then we consciously recognize and incorporate into our self, our mind, our personality, uh, including our own behavior. So we act in a certain way, that becomes part of our conscious perception of who we are. And uh, in fact, we learn a lot about who we are through the way we act. But, yeah, no, and I'm just going to say this can, you can relate this back, I think, to actually trauma as something important in Valbog. And also to the images you mentioned first connected to the uh, typhoid fever. Uh, so, and trauma and learned fear responses, which is something that Joe has also written about, I think are very much implicated in Valbuk's life, but also in his theoretical position about the shock yes. that returns. And you know Valbuk. I'm giving it to you. Well, I'm just picking up <laughs> on the notion of the Valborgian unconscious and the distance between, or the, 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 how we might move from a conscious, uh, well, the first phrase in, in, in the introduction to Nemozune is um, conscious creation of distance. He insists upon the fact that he is, this is a practice that he, he this project is going to show the means by which he moves from the demonic to something more ecstatic or more mediated, something, something controllable. And the fact that he insists on Nietzsche's polarity between the Dionysian and the Apollonian in the same text suggests to me that he's realizing that the method that he of of collating, combining, separating, which he worked on with collaborators, but mainly it was it was Valbuk himself who insisted on the arrangement of the images, was the means by which he could de-demonize, quote unquote, yeah. these images, but implicitly also his own past and his own demons. Yes. So if you yes. if you uh, take people into the lab and make them afraid of something, create a threatening stimulus by pairing something with shock or so forth, and then re-expose them to that stimulus and ask them to think about a, a pleasant field of daisies or something like that, you can lower the, the response of the autonomic nervous system and also reduce amygdala activity to that threat by arranging a context for it. So it sounds like this is similar. Uh, to what he's it's doing. It's similar, but I'm just afraid <laughs> from, from the sort of philological comparatist perspective that we're losing the historical richness of Valborg's knowledge, that, that he knew things about the history of astrology, the history of cosmography, the history of art, that history of literature that allowed him to, as you suggesting in your last as you suggested in your last sentence, to lower the fear factor, as it were. Right. right. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, go ahead. And no, then I have a uh, uh, at least uh, what I sense is that, and again, you, you formulated it by speaking about cultural versus personal memory. I think uh, there are two aspects that one can bring to the discussion. One is 
the, the, the motivations, let's call them, or the drives that made Warburg organize the images uh, in a certain way in Nemozin, in the Atlas, and, and, and that is clearly the result of yes. his personal life, his personal yes. Freudian unconscious, yeah, let's fair. say, I mean, it's his unconscious drives, and then his intuition about Nachleben, these, uh, the constancy, the, the, the persistence, the survivance of, yeah. of certain antique patterns, and, and that relates to, to the other point I was trying to make and to, to propose to this. Maybe there are these archetypal forms that are not, have nothing to do with the collective unconscious, but simply no. with the biological reality. Yes. And, and, and actually, I was discussing last night with Andre Pinotti about something that resonates with this, and it's the notion of Urbild by Burkhardt. Yeah. And so this idea yeah. that there are uh, certain um, Prime, primal or uh, original yeah. or original images that that are, have nothing mythical. Actually, they have some. They are biological for our species. Yes, and I think I think you're right. We don't want to fall into some kind of reductive um, position. At least I don't. Maybe other people do. Where yeah. you're reducing um, this very complex historical. Um, an intellectual reality to, say, a part of the brain. I, but are we I, trying I think, to understand yeah. him, or are we trying to get more general ideas about no, how the I, mind works? No, I think, for example, the idea of Denkraum, you can move this across fields. So um, this idea of distance, or Denkraum, subject-object, um, can, I think, be related to unconsciousness or pre-reflective self-consciousness and reflective self-consciousness in, in phenomenology. Or, Kierkegaard said, immediacy, a motor sensory immediate you know, perceptions that are coming into the body versus reflection. Huh? So, and this would relate to what you call the slow road in fear perception, huh? right? So there's this immediate response to the snake on, on, uh, you know, in front of you where your whole body is just in alarm mode. And then there are the slower responses that have cognitive functions, higher cognitive functions. Yeah, so, so what, this, what this make me think is uh, perhaps the, the load of emotions and the demons attached to it. So it's overwhelming. It's emotions. And then making this space or, or, or taking the, the distance by giving a context, by giving some, something that is attached to it so that a, a story can be made yeah. or a, a continuity so that something can be said from the beginning to the end. Yes. And that is a way to move from the pure emotional state that is overwhelming and therefore may be therapeutic. And you're reconfiguring yeah. the fundamental metaphor of that Warburg uses, well, in all throughout the 20s, namely the Wanderstrasse, the, 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 the road by which he moves from the demonic through to something more reasoned, more prudential. But then, of course, he re-encounters the demonic maybe in 1929 Rome, um, that it's never, it's never, I mean, unlike Gombrich's neo-Kantian 
account of, 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 of Valborg's career, intellectual career, and, and, and George has said this in his book wonderfully, it's never, there's, it's, Valborg's thought is not teleological, it never comes to an end, uh, a nice, calm, settled um, no. synthesis. No. And, and so the, he's always re-encountering these images in both, in a manner that requires mediation memory and the kind of work that you are well, describing. In a form possibly of visual narrative, and maybe that's my narrative um, obsession, but I do think it's making conscious meanings out of the terror, I mean, the, the, the archetypal motor sensory visual overload is the flashback. Huh? That you're just, there's no linguistic material there. Exactly. There's no linguistic material. So I think that, that the Warburgian reality is negotiating exactly what you said. The demonic is this motor sensory terror. Huh? You know, he talks about something like, I have it somewhere, the melancholy, you know, the, the, the tranquility, or no, the, uh, oh God. It's cannibalistic fury and melancholic something or other. Here it is. Um, entire range of emotional gesture, now he's talking about the image, from helpless melancholy to murderous cannibalism. Yes. <laughs> well, no, it's just that, that he, in fact, insists that the possibilities of using his method can result in either this, the ecstatic or the melancholic. Yeah. And this is after having the initial, um, he uses the phrase which is very Nietzschean, um, Nervenreiz, the initial, uh, initial um, pull, draw of the, of the nerves, of the feelings, um, of this, the bodily, the corporeal, and then the abstracted, even mathematical view of images that he condemns in, for instance, Hellenistic astrology. Um, it's either too visceral or too abstracted, and Valborg is looking for a middle yeah. road, a middle yeah. path in which... Um, both the, 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 the immediate and the abstracted can be in some sort of balance, and therefore he's interested in logos and mythos at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And hallucination is an interesting aspect of, of this. How so? It? Well, the hallucinations that he remembers from his childhood, um, the, and the, the fact that, that he does organize his thinking in a kind of bipolar way, huh? and that then he has a psychotic break, which is not just a break, but it lasts for years, right? Um, which he then recovers from, I think, in a way, through Denkraum, through this therapeutic aspect of finding the distance through both writing and maybe arranging his mind, yes. these, this, these complexes of images. It's fascinating. And he was extraordinarily keen to have acknowledgement from his peers um, that this new method of, of the, the Bilderreihe technique of, of sequences of images, that it would successfully help others mediate this, this polarity. Um, the famous example of him traveling to visit Einstein 
um, and show him some of the cosmographical images in, in this form of, of visual metonymy and that Einstein was impressed and agreed and could argue with him about the mathematics of it suggested to Valborg that he had succeeded in finding a technique, a method. Yeah, but I think also someone in the, in the last session, um, Ernst Chris was, was mentioned and um, Chris talks about an aesthetic barrier in art, in creativity, mm -hmm. yeah? that in a way preserves the artist from you know, complete ego disintegration mm. right? in these imaginative flights. I think <coughs> this, is a, this is a linked thought, that the aesthetic barrier is what Valbog is trying to set up. Huh? And the stakes are very high in his case. But what, uh, just to go back to these um, archetypal um, images that, that can then be re put into different contexts. I mean, the, for example, we sh the images that we saw yesterday uh, in uh, yeah. George's presentation, I mean, the angle of the foot, I mean, this, and, and with all that it brings in terms of, uh, um, you know, representations, um, I mean, that is a very specific uh, um, uh, pattern uh, yes. that uh, may have uh, been remain, remained across uh, centuries. And, and that's what I was saying. Again, activating particular uh, circuits, but then, or neurons, actually. Uh, but then, obviously, it's, it's contextualized, uh, you know, in, in a painting by Ghirlandaio or in, in others. So this detail that he points and mentions often, this and others, but the notion of detail that he gives so much importance. Maybe, um, again, I, I don't want to be reductionistic, yeah. but maybe it has a, a biological underpinning. Yeah, well, and I think if we bring up Vittorio and uh, you know, mirror systems in the brain mm -hmm. um, that are you know, working pre-conceptually, um, and you know, the, those wonderful tapes I, uh, about of dancers who are watching uh, other dancers, mm -hmm. and how the activation is different from just a lay person like myself watching a dancer. So there, you know, there are these. Um, this is not a conscious connection, but it activates, you know, motor sensory parts of ourselves. And this may be a link to Valbog, as you say, not talking about a Jungian collective unconscious, mm -hmm. but certain aspects of human experience that are. Um, well, to risk the word universal. Yeah. And maybe, you know, uh, Joe, the, the notion of how um, the body is engaged, I mean, in terms of the somatic uh, states uh, in, in emotions, maybe again, I mean, that's also an aspect, I think, yeah. in, in yeah. when he speaks. I'm not sure. Maybe you have to correct me. But this idea of pathos formel is it yes. some kind of affect, some kind of emotion that such um, um, that such um, patterns can can generate? Uh, you know, maybe there also there is a connection with you know something that from the amygdala activates. Uh, endocrine or, yeah, I mean, or, so or autonomic responses. There's certain systems in the brain, obviously, that control our autonomic nervous system. Exactly. 
and the patterns that uh, occur often are in response to movement, in response to behavior, yeah. to meet the metabolic demands of the behavior. So if you move your arm, you've got to get blood in there. And as you begin to move it, uh, you're using energy. And so you have to resupply the energy. So every movement requires that the brain orchestrate a set of responses to adjust the uh, uh, physiology of the body to that system. And all of those physiological responses, whether they're of the autonomic nervous system or the endocrine system, are providing signals that then feed back to the brain, as is the movement itself through the proprioceptive systems. So there's a tremendous amount of information coming back to the brain. And I'm not necessarily talking about it in the sense of a Damasio kind of uh, creating a feeling, right. but it's certainly affecting uh, the information processing functions of the brain in a massive way. So all of the hormones that are released, for example, cortisol is yeah. very yeah. Uh, important. It's released from the adrenal gland, goes into the brain, and binds to the amygdala, hippocampus, prefrontal cortex. Um, you name it, it's in hypothalamus, it's all over the brain. And so it's going to affect the way all of those systems are responding to the external world, whether they're processing information implicitly or unconsciously or in a, in a conscious sense. So um, the detection of some significant stimulus in an image can trigger all of that, and then it feeds back to the brain, which then affects the perception and it becomes a feed-forward so, circle. Yeah. So I suppose my question then would be, in the case of Vavok, and using the word case, <laughs> um, after five years, five-plus years of institutions, after having his voice, there's descriptions of his voice having been affected by all the screaming that he did when he was institutionalized, it was kind of broken by it. Can, could, from a neuroscientific point of view, could Vavok have, how would his reaction to the image have been changed having gone through that dark night of the soul, as it were, um, and having learned or taught himself and been taught to see these images over and over again for 40 years? Physiologically, is there something that has changed or, or in, could he have changed? Could he have cultivated a particular reaction? Is he unique? Is he exemplary? Well, every experience changes your brain. Yeah, the, the, yes. the sitting here talking changes yeah. your brain. And the more profound the experience, the more change there's going to be. Yeah. So being in a prison and screaming and being in an awful or any kind of awful situation is going to change all of the systems in the brain because they're all responding and, and part of this activity. So yeah, I mean, he's going to change as a result of that. and. Um, um, the way he deals with the world after that will change as well. I don't know if that answers your question, but which brings up plasticity, yeah, well, which you have something to say about, I know. But uh, so that, in other words, what we're talking about are dynamic systems, which does really relate to Valbog very in a in a profound way. I think both methodologically and you know how we can know what we know. He's he's always in motion. Yes. Right? It's never, I mean, this is what um, Georges, who was here anyway, um, Georges was saying that there's a kind of Ideenflucht, uh, <coughs> you know, to use the Binswanger, mm -hmm. in the work itself, which can be maddening when you're reading it, but is 
very, very interesting from um, uh, an intellectual point of view. It can't be pinned down. And so the idea of dynamism uh, is, is implicit and explicit in his work. Right, and in fact, in his latter years, he starts to use the word dynamogram. Yes, yes. As a, a, a replacement term for the pathos formula. Yeah, yeah. More or less. Yeah. And so, I, again, pushing on this, of course, every individual, every experience has, shapes the way we see the world. But I'm wondering, Valbuck's conscious strategies, the Bildatlas, Dynamogram, Pathos formulas, they, they, they seem from a certain point of view to almost be not defense mechanisms but coping mechanisms by which he is able to still look at those images that right. cause him such terror. And he uses the word terror, fear, over and again. Yeah, over you're over. absolutely right. I, I, and, and so it's not either or, no. to, to, no. to bring up Kierkegaard again. It's not either or, it's some kind of swimming and motion between these two poles um, that he, you know, he keeps thinking. And it is a kind of mind-body polarity. You know? And unlike the rest of, I kept thinking of the spatial metaphor, unlike the rest of Western culture where it's mind over body, the hierarchy, huh? in Valbog it seems to be the, the spatial metaphor is like this, and it's a continuum between mm -hmm. the two. But you know, you, you mentioned the plasticity, and yeah, I mean, obviously every experience changes the brain through the mechanisms of plasticity, but maybe, Christina, you, you, have, uh, you can say something about the dynamics of, of memory and, and, yeah. and, and of the traces. I think maybe that could be of interest to uh, the group. Yeah. So that's yeah, something so, you've been so working on. Mechanism of plasticity, which is uh, <coughs> that we used to process, uh, and uh, we very much used to make memories. And memories can be short lasting or long lasting. So there is short term plasticity, long term plasticity. Uh, and uh, um, this mechanism can be actually studied now um, relatively in detail. So we know some of the. Uh, underlying mechanisms of long-term plasticity, important for long-term memories, and how those then, when they are retrieved, the memories, can influence the present, the present. And the present is going to be made of the present experience plus the retrieval of the memories. So this, I think, is very important and relevant to think about how that can play. Uh, and uh, there is less known or understood about memory retrieval, which is the other process that we are all interested in. I, I want to make a correction here. Actually, Joe is the one who rediscovered reconsolidation. I want to make a And then I started to work on it. <laughs> I didn't Karim Nader. Karim Nader in your lab rediscovered. <laughs> Uh, reconsolidation and, and those are processes that are very interesting to think about also in the context of, of how we feel uh, and how this changes over time. So not only this mechanism of plasticity which the brain changes and make long-term changes to store the memories, but these changes are not static. They yes. keep changing. They are very dynamic. Which is related to Nachträglichkeit we can say. Huh? to Freud's idea of what 
Strachey translated as deferred uh, action, which is not a good translation, but afterliness, yes. which is dynamic and not static. Yes. Yeah. So, Christina, maybe the coping that he's talking about is a constant reconsolidation where the meaning has changed with each experience and maybe having the, you know, the, the demonic and the ecstatic together reconsolidates the memory in a, a slightly different way, which then allows the next experience to be less demonic. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I love this idea of reconsolidation, or um, some people have described it as, as Valbog's combinatory art, which almost is based on kind of medieval combinatory art that he, he can take the, 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 the heterogeneous copia and find a way to constellate it in such a way, in, in, in a manner that is both instructive to others, satisfying to him, and ultimately a form of memory work. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's yeah. And so just, just to be um, yeah, a, a little more um, precise about how it works, reconsolidation is when memories are retrieved and they become uh, fragile and changeable. And this is a temporal window uh, during which changes can happen. And then if the memory becomes, again, less changeable. However, over time, because there are many uh, inputs coming in, many new experiences, many re-elaboration, the overall trace is very, very dynamic. Mm -hmm. But there are specific processes and temporal window during which there is a, a, a much more uh, uh, power and possibility and, and, and uh, uh, ability to make changes. So modulating, obviously, the state, the emotional state is one of those that happens. During I mean, this idea that uh, the mechanisms of plasticity allow the traces to be inscribed in the, in the neuronal circuits, but that, that, so it's something that would seem like permanent, but actually that's not the case. I think this is why I thought it was important to discuss. They can be yes. remobilized through and reassociated in, with others in different contexts. So it's a really a dynamics of these traces is very important and it's being studied by Christina, Joe, and others, yeah. And so that's, this is a heuristic, this is, you're speaking to the heuristic quality of Valbog's late work. Yeah. He's constantly using these methods, whether in lecture or with the sequences of images, yeah. to discover and, and, and bring people along with him. And people describe his four-hour lecture, in, in famous lecture in Rome, the Herziana yeah. lecture in early January um, 1929, as a heuristic experience by which Valborg takes his viewers and I say viewers, maybe that's a slip there, because he had 19 panels along, along the lecture room. And no one could see them. No one could see them. <laughs> but yet, people describe the, the, the being in the lecture as this marvelous revelatory experience. Yes. And Valbock himself, at one point in the lecture, says, yes, um, this, he speaks of it in terms of a phenomenology by which he mediates between his, between the legacy of the, phob the phobic legacy on the one hand, and the ability to engage the world. So let's take the images and then the historical images, and then let's see, let's re-experience them. And he brings his 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 audience along with him. Well, and also I think it's important to this the idea of a dynamic changing concept, which I think has attracted so many 
contemporary thinkers and scholars to Valborg is the idea that you that you could move the images, right? I mean, that they were on a kind of black felt, and then you could shift the arrangement, which is very similar to what happens in memory. You know, I myself have noticed in my autobiographical memories, um, explicit memories, that I have actually changed the location. So it, I have a strong memory, emotional memory, you know, of being embarrassed by laughing adults when I was four. And um, I always remembered it in my aunt's house. Well, it was remembered. It did happen, I believe, in my aunt's house. But because I couldn't remember the early house, I shifted the memory to the later location which I had memorized. This is an extremely interesting example, I think. First of all, that we need to pin our memories to location, which is a very ancient idea and medieval idea, uh, to loci. Hmm? Greek. Greek, yes, but the Greek was topos, topos, and then Cicero. Simonides is the story. And then it's Cicero who really codified this, who you know tells the story of Simonides. And, uh, and that idea of topos, I think, is completely valid in these discussions of, of uh, of yeah. reconsolidation. I mean, in, the, in this sense, I, I actually would say that our memories are very inefficient. Yes. Uh, our memory systems, uh, or at least this type of memories, the memories that are, you know, declarative, shaky. Yeah. Very shaky because we don't need really to remember all the details. Actually, if we think about how many details we learn every single day, yeah. we lose them all. Right. What remains is an essential, uh, very faint trace of something. And then that something, especially if it's an old memory, has to be placed somewhere. So then we make the connections, and this is how the false parts of the memories are formed. Well, I think, you know, imagination normal and, and, and memory, <laughs> I, you know, as Vico said, these are two functions of the same faculty. And you know, if you look at hippocampal lesions in the brain, um, people who can't remember very well also can't imagine very well. Um, so you know that Buckner Carroll paper about the perspective brain that maybe um, it's not about accurate memories of our past, but using that material to predict future exactly. events. Mm -hmm. Right. That's so it's a it's a forward-looking yes, <laughs> kind of function, that. and that's, I think that's, that's useful. And um, all of this actually is not very un-Valbogian, except he was looking more past. He was a <laughs> He was a retrospective looker. But he was fascinated by memory palaces. Yes. And he and saw, Bruno. he describes the atlas at certain points as a kind of neo-memory palace that would help salvage or retain those, those details that are lost yeah. without insisting on the details themselves, but, but just by making them present. Because there is no verbal thickening around them as it stands. Well, did. <laughs> Where are we in our drama?
We have a question? How should we do? Yeah, I think so. Don't you think we're good? Yeah, you have to go to the mic. Just for this. I can speak loud. So uh, two possible nexes for your discussion about memory and reconsolidation. One is about the nature of, nature of emotions research, which would be a nexus between neurobiology and the other stuff that we all do. Um, and I'm thinking of Paul Ekman's work on emotions yeah. and of how you have rapid reaction about a quarter second before you become conscious or show your emotional expression on your face and, and his work on gesture. And the second possible nexus, I thought of Bob Pinus's work and trauma when you were giving your specific memory about space. And Bob points out how um, he has a developmental model of trauma, which I think fits with what you were talking about, of reconsolidation. And there's entry points where one can change, for better or for worse, the nature yeah. of memory of trauma. But also in terms of spatial location, Bob points out how um, a child, for instance, in a sniping episode in, in L.A., remembers the sniping episode, remembers details yeah, of the yeah. soldier's boots, and misremembers his location next to his buddy who was shot yeah. as a way of protecting yeah. himself. It's different from your explanation. Yeah, yeah. Protecting himself from the memory of how close he but, came but to death. But my memory wasn't traumatic. Yeah. You know, that it was emotional, but it wasn't traumatic. I think traumatic memory has a very specific uh, kind of, and it can be hyper-detailed. I mean, I have a traumatic memory of being in a car accident, which was followed by flashbacks. And that's similar in the sense that I have voided the actual impact. Everything else is hyper clear. Well, but the impact is missing. I mean, the, yeah. the research on that suggests that it's very clear, but not necessarily accurate. So you have very vis Absolutely. visible. Absolutely. I'm not claiming that it's what I'm remembering is how it happened, because actually, I, I have black and white memory. I mean, the, I think what the data show is that the main focus is remembered, and then the periphery of the memory is where all the uh, you know, mistakes come in. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, two things you said, Siri, sparked thoughts that I would love to just make two quick observations and throw it, throw it back to you. Speaking of murderous cannibalism, A.B. Warburg became a vegetarian during his hospitalization because of a very concrete, specific fear that he was being served the cooked flesh of his own family members. He had these persistent fears of you know, drinking blood, not just the Jews' blood, but you know, his own family members. He had visions, uh, and he accused his doctor of, in a very eerily prescient way, shipping train cars packed with yeah. the flesh of Jews. And this is, you know, 1921. So I'm asking a question for which I don't have an answer about his own ambivalence or even fear of his own aggression and his, and, and his desire to not, you know, devour his relatives or the Jews. Uh, my, the other spark from something you said when you talked about him and his endless flight, his endless motion, and how he couldn't be pinned down. Uh, while he was hospitalized, a doctor's note in his chart 
and this is obviously translated, said, he practices a cult with the moths and butterflies that fly into his room at night. He speaks to them for hours. He calls them his little soul animals, Silenterchen, and tells them about his suffering. And then direct quote from his notes, it's hard to know is this experience or fantasy or a dream or what it is. The most beautiful butterfly I have ever pinned down suddenly bursts through the glass and dances mockingly upwards into the blue air. Now I should catch it again, but I am not equipped for this kind of locomotion, or to be exact, I should like to, but my intellectual training does not permit me to do so. I should like, at the approach of our light-footed girl, joyfully to whirl away with her, but such soaring movements are not for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's in the letter to, to Jolas, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's more no, psychoanalytic. No, think, yeah, no. yeah. Okay. Francois, yeah. yes, okay. yes, you, your turn. No, a, a very naive question because here you are two from literature and three from neurosciences. And uh, Christina is uh, also a psychoanalyst and mm-hmm. neuroscientist. And I was asking me, finally, after this round table, what is a dynamic memory? Because we are looking in a new way, a dynamic memory. And we, you were speaking about Warburg unconscious, a new kind of unconscious right. we'll discuss this afternoon. <laughs> Freudian unconscious, cognitive unconscious, and now Warburg unconscious. <laughs> and after the discussion about Dynamic memory, reconciliation, retrieval, transformation. I thought it was possible to introduce a new concept. It is reconsolidation in culture, because you have the incidents also of culture through the process of reconciliation, rebuilding, transforming uh, the, the, the memories through not only the individual uh, history of each one, but also through the, 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 the impact of the culture in the inside world. And uh, uh, I don't know if you can take this new view of uh, thinking reconsolidation yeah, also yeah. In, in confrontation of the question of culture. No, I think this is really important because I think it relates again to the Denkraum, to reflective self-consciousness, if you will, to uh, you know Kierkegaard's reflection to all of this, that, that space where you have necessarily you have culture. So if we think about human beings as socio, uh, psycho, biological beings with those hyphens in some way blurred, I know this is not good in science, but you know, I can, I can do this. <laughs> and that, that, it, that if we think about that, then you, you know, we understand that these things are completely mingling together. Because of course, culture, everything we read, everything we see becomes part of our you know, psychobiological reality. Because we have one part, plasticity means all is conserved, and for the other part, plasticity all is susceptible to change. And yes. you, if you have this double view, for example, the snake, and it is the conservation of something through memory, 
uh, we don't know where, it's very difficult, to William James' hypothesis and so on. And we have also the idea of diachronic reorganization, permanent reorganization, each experience, every experience modifies, uh, we never use the same brain and so on. And it, it, hearing that, it is difficult to, to to think these two contradictory dimensions. No, it's all no, the same I thing. So, so no, the, I mean, the yeah. snake is there, and so yeah. the place where you're bit I by agree. the snake becomes stored as part of the, you know, becomes plastic and stored as a new memory. And then the, uh, the people you were with, or if you go back to that place, the people you're with at that time become part of that memory. And, and that's why I've, I've, yeah, argued, I've yeah. argued that metaphor is precisely the way we have, need to read this dynamic cultural space because it's able to keep contradictory things together at once. And but Christopher, you're absolutely right. The metaphor is probably the beautiful motion here of all the possibilities of changing meanings. Yes, huh? yes. Right, so that, and that can also as a form of Denkraum between the two uh, poles of metaphorical thinking. Sorry. Thank you. I have a comment uh, trying to link the two round tables and trying to go from the notion of uh, detail that was very much stressed uh, in yeah. uh, the previous round table to the notion of this collective memory <laughs> that on the contrary is at the center of some of your discussions. Um, detail, um, attention to the peripheral element, the particular uh, I would say, micrological attitude. It is true that it is something that, of course, is typical of Warburg, but of many other authors, not only art historians in uh, the 20th century. I was thinking of Benjamin, of course, but Georges yesterday mentioned uh, Giovanni Morelli, alias Ivan Lermoliev, so important, as we know, to, to Freud. We, we, we shouldn't... Uh, <coughs> We should be very cautious here, because I think that detail is crucial, but at the same time we should distinguish two very different approaches, micrological approaches, because as George already said, in Morelli you have the analysis, the exploration of the single detail, Botticelli's nail, Filipino Lippi's uh, ear, but what is the task? The task is that you have to identify the responsible of the image, the individual, the artist responsible, the attribution. So detail here is used as a, uh, I would say, principium individuationis, the individual. On the contrary, uh, if you read the conclusion of the Botticelli's essay by Warburg, there, it comes out very clearly that he is not at all interested in I, Botticelli as an individual. I agree, yes. Detail is, is used there in order to see, he uses uh, Carl Justi and he quotes uh, Aristotle's categories, the notion of uh, deuterausia, the second substance, because it says the detail uh, evokes in Botticelli something that is not only Botticelli, something that Botticelli shares with the past, with a common ground, with other painters, and so it's rather um, the, the common ground, the koineistesis, the common sense shared. And 
so I come to the second roundtable. What is this common ground shared? It is not uh, uh, the collective unconscious. I have difficulties as well in thinking of this notion. <laughs> but uh, here, herring, zemon, yes. it is inherited cerebral substance, which yeah. is a very uh, <laughs> is, difficult, yeah. as difficult perhaps as the collective yeah. unconscious yeah. To, yeah. to understand. But it is substance inherited from centuries, through centuries. And if something can, can uh, come up again in the Renaissance, it is because <laughs> Donatello yeah. or Botticelli absolutely. inherit absolutely. materials. So it's, it's, it's uh, anti-Bergsonian. It's not memory or matter, but it's memory is matter. And it, it's something shared. So I would call it principium dividuationis, because it hints at something that is shared among uh, a, a group of a community through through centuries or thousands yeah. of years. Yeah, we just don't know how that works. I, I will only quickly uh, add that <laughs> it is true that Warburg is not um, young, as we know very well. It is also true, as we spoke last night with Pierre, that uh, Jung says my notion of uh, collective unconscious is, is, Zemon's Mneme. And my idea of archetype is Burkhardt's Warbild. Right. We know that right. Burkhardt right. and Zemon are two very important sources in Warburg. And perhaps it would be a good idea to finally discuss how from Zemon and Burkhardt, common and shared sources, to so different perspectives on the idea of the yeah. Warbuilder and yeah. the co collective uh, memory can uh, be articulated. Well, it's true, but, but it may be, you know, I, we talked a little bit last night because I started reading this guy, Zemon, really because I found him in Valbuk. And, um, and it, it's very interesting. But when you return to Valbuk after having read Zemon, you realize that it's, it's not Zemon anymore. I don't know what your impression is because, you know, you're probably closer to this, but I just thought, oh, so it's not like Jung. It's denatured. By the time you get back to it, it's not Simon anymore. It's a kind of, again, I think a dynamic principle that just keeps running through, which, which escapes at least me as a reader. I can't literally pin it down. I can't do the butterfly but thing. But the dynamism isn't with Walburg rethinking Zeman throughout his life. No. He has a rather <laughs> static view of, of Zeman. Rather, it is the dynamism of this synchronic immediate presence that he feels with a Ghirlandaio, for instance. Yes, that, I agree. That, that, that there's this kind of synchronicity between himself and, and the artists that he studies because in part, they're heroically, Walburg's words, struggling against with the, these, this energy that, that he is struggling with as well. Yeah. And, and that's, that's remarkable. Um, it's very stimulating, so I have many questions. Uh, two questions uh, for Christian Siri, and one question uh, for Christina, Joe, and Pierre. Uh, the first question is uh, stemming from my ignorance. Uh, you talk a lot about collective unconscious, Jung. Uh, so what about, if any, well, not you, but we discuss Jung a lot. 
What if any relationship between Wundt and I, uh, uh, and Warburg? Wundt was almost never mentioned this morning. Yeah, it's true. The second question, particularly for Siri, uh, the relationship between creativity was not uh, so much addressed so far. Yeah. So the relationship between mania or hypomania and creativity. Yeah. And for the neuroscientists, we have a dream team here about memory. So <laughs> something that really uh, is puzzling me, uh, the brain is about 2% of body weight, but it gets uh, about 15% of the heart uh, output. 25. Uh, 25, or more than 20% of more than 20, yeah. basal consumption of oxygen. Of, yeah. So it costs a lot of energy. Episodic memory. It turns out uh, I, I attended a lecture by uh, Jerry Torp recently about music. So when you're a kid, you listen every day to the Beatles. Okay, then you stop. You, you decide to uh, shift to a different musical taste. You listen to, I don't know, shoots or <laughs> some Baroque music. Then all of a sudden, uh, you listen to as little as 30 milliseconds of a song. You used to listen a lot, but in the last 30 years, you never listened to, and boom. It hasn't to be help, because help is very easy. Help, it's help. But any song you, you listen uh, continuously uh, can be recognized uh, uh, immediately, or at least that's, that's what I learned. Uh, so if you can confirm that, what is your opinion about the neurophysiological mechanism enabling this trace to be sleeping for 30 years, if, <laughs> if is it a trace at all, and then, boom, to be recovered? And how much affect has to do with this? Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's the first one. I'm just going to say something briefly about hypomania and, <laughs> and creativity. First of all, I really think that there, there is a connection, um, a deep connection between the nervous system, motor sensory routes to imaginative acts. Um, I can tell you just uh, personally that um, for me, when I'm writing, uh, the rhythms are extremely important. And I can feel when a rhythm is wrong, and I and and I correct it. And those rhythms, and you know what I like to call um, emotional truth, which is you know why one story and not another. In my case, I mean this is a good question. A fiction writer can write anything. You know, I can write about flying zebras if I want to, and no one will say I can't do it. There's no sort of truth truth with a capital T. What there is are emotional truths that are expressed through the stories. And a great deal of that is unconscious. And it's connected to motor sensory aspects. I think all creativity is alike. I don't care what field you're in. And I always pull out this brilliant <coughs> quote from um, Einstein, who was asked by Jacques Hadamard how he worked. And he said, none of my work has anything to do with signs, either mathematical or linguistic. The way I work is visual, muscular, and emotional. And later, it's translated into symbols. This for me is, a, is simply um, 
an experience that, that, that resonates with my own experience. And um, so I think that the roots of creativity and Valborg, I think at least certainly implicitly is talking about that. The, you know, the, the question of subject and object, yes. where there's no difference, this kind of you know, deep you know, <coughs> bodily experience where there's really no reflection, which then becomes a form of reflection, say, in the act of making symbols, whether they are, I think they're different, you know, uh, uh, linguistic signs are different from images, but nevertheless, they're all, they're all a form of creating that distance. There's an aesthetic barrier that's protective. Yes, and we haven't really, speaking to the question of creativity, we haven't really spoken about Valborg's unpublished writings, especially in the, his late years, which are, a, a la, he calls them a laboratory, he uses this metaphor again and again, for his discoveries, for his numerous unfinished, unfinishable projects, and the way that he moves from one idea to another and, and, and condenses, predicts his, his language in a playful way is extraordinary as he tries to discover new projects and new connections that he hadn't previously um, contemplated, even as he returns to his old ideas. So, the, so if you read the, the, the diary, uh, the Tagebuch in the, in the last three years, the, the palpable enthusiasm, inspiration that he feels with the new Bruno project is, is like a little kid. And, and he, it, it's as if um, he's persuaded himself that he's, remade, he's been able to remade him, remake himself. So for instance, he says at one point, Bruno, with whom I've been engaged with for 40 years, and there's no evidence whatsoever that, he, that this is anything but a new project. Right. Just suggests the, the, the degree but, to which he... But he feels it. Yes, yes. It's, it's you know, a sibling. Yes. That's it. Okay. Oh, so, Wundt. Someone, yeah. Christina, so maybe you could talk about Wundt. I'm start give some <laughs> answer or some, some uh, talks, uh, some comment about the question of uh, how these memories can last for such a long time and be retrieved later on. Uh, well, that, that is one of the outstanding questions to be addressed in, in neuroscience. Um, uh, there are a number of suggestive results. Um, um, Long-term memories rely on biological changes. That's a fact. Uh, so what type of biological changes can maintain this information for more than 30 years? And yeah. when they are recalled in a fraction of a, a second or you know, yeah. a very short time, they can return. So um, you know, study all these mechanisms in the last 20 years, we know that it certainly is not the, the um, making of proteins, what's called gene expression that is required for long-term memory and the transition in proteins, because proteins have a much shorter life. They cannot last for more than 30 years. But there are mechanisms that regulate those making of the proteins. One that was mentioned is uh, uh, you know, chromatin changes, epigenetics. Yeah. And those can really last for a long time. I would add to that that another possibility that is still not explored is feedback mechanisms they can actually maintain a process for a very long time. One that is, has been very much discussed is actually the network of synapses, the contacts among uh, 
neural cells, mm -hmm. including astrocytes, mm -hmm. I would think. Uh, and maybe the network is what is able to maintain over time the information. So they, they can, there can be changes because there is plasticity. You, you can make new association, take out others, modulate the intensity and so on. But there is a substrate, a combination of synapses that is maintained when triggered, the memory returns. And I, I, I leave to Joe the emotional part, very well, the, important. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the music part is, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that um, Music does have this special way of kind of getting to the, the uh, sweet spot of emotion yeah. and memory in, in, in the way that nothing else can. And, but I would maintain that the, the, mem the, the musical memories that do that most are the ones from your adolescence. <laughs> and the reason for that is because, this is total speculation, but because of the hormonal upheaval and changes that are taking place at that time, consolidate those memories especially strongly so that when you hear that fragment of the introduction to help or some other song, it's because it happened at a time when your emotional life was just really starting to happen in a profound way. Yeah. Just a comment on the energy utilization. I mean, um, this idea that um, maintaining memories is an active process may be also reflected in these very high costs for uh, energetic cost of the brain, which is really but 10 times as much. What's puzzling is why the brain should invest energy to keep in memory something uh, you, the brain will never know if it will happen again, yeah. unless it has some very strong uh, emotional meaning. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, long-term memories are always connected to emotion. Yeah. Unless, no, unless there is another way of making long-term memories, which is through repetition. Those are other types of memories. And who knows, maybe also repressing memories costs energy. Thank you. Uh, it occurs to me that um, hearing what we've heard the last couple of days, and particularly at this session, that what Varborg needs most is what Freud received, I want to say, 25 or 30 years ago, a book by Frank Sullivan, Freud, the Biologist of the Mind. We need, it seems like, and I think Andrea mentioned it, you know, Varberg went to study medicine after his military service. I don't think we fully appreciate the magnitude, as, and particularly in some of the suggestive passages that um, Spiros mentioned about um, Varberg's reading of Darwin and that his yeah. belief that perception involved a kind of energetic transfer, a creation of a symbol that is the, the stimulus generated a response which became kind of the, um, the biological substrate for an internal image that I believe Professor Rose talks about very persuasively. And that is the expression of these biological images in pathos formula, Schlagbilder, and what have you. This is the stuff I think that you know, Warburg deserves. He deserves the serious kind of treatment as a, the first affective um, neuroscientist. He, you know, and this business of this collective unconscious <laughs> may not be as effective as what Timothy Wilson talks about as an, a, the, um, I think he calls it the um, adaptive unconscious. And so this adaptivity, I think, is one of the things that Warburg was constantly aware of. And why you could have these recurrences, this Nachleben, is because the biological substrate remains the same through time. And the you know the uh, stimuli change, but the the substrate remains. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on that adaptive 
and Solway connection. <laughs> I would just say you make a very compelling case. <laughs> and I just yeah. want to address this idea of mania and creativity. Yeah. I think Freud was right when he said a mild state of depression is for him the best state of creativity. And that's because in the depressive position to go to Winnicott, you bring the projections back home, take responsibility, and it's not all enemies out there, it's inside. Yeah, but hypomania does not have to be that. I mean, if you look at um, you know, uh, certain manic patients and um, the energy that's, that's produced, or even if you look at certain um, hypergraphic um, uh, conditions that accompany uh, temporal lobe epilepsy, um, um, for example, <coughs> Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky uh, I was clearly hypergraphic. He had temporal lobe epilepsy. And what he produced in those moments of, I would, you can certainly call it hypomania, were you know, brilliant works of art. I mean, the content is not determined by his hypomania. Um, but I think it can go both ways, that depressive positions can produce great art, but so can hypomanic positions. Anybody has a comment to the gentleman's question <laughs> regarding adaptation? Oh, yeah. If not, then we will stop, and we will regather here at 2 o'clock. That'll be a wrap-up with about an hour, an hour, 15 minutes, where all the participants will be. Is it 2 o'clock? Yeah, 2 o'clock. So we finish by about 3.30, the latest. Still thinking, yeah, it was very OK, well, sure. No, it was great for you to come. <laughs> I do. Yeah. I, I, I learned an immense amount. Yeah.